Welcome to Conscious Bridge Radio, the program where we explore the evolution of spirituality, politics, and culture. Now here is your host, the author of four books, including Be Yourself and Our Spiritual Evolution, Mark Gilbert. Hello again, everybody. Mark Gilbert here, and welcome to a very special retrospective edition of Conscious Bridge Radio. Over the next approximately one hour, we're going to be looking at some of the best moments from the program over the year 2016. We're going to be hearing clips from the program with Don Beck, Michael Dowd, Lee Eric Smith, Arun Gandhi, Gregory Toole, and Barbara Bu. But anytime you're including some people, you're leaving folks out. So my apologies to authors John Freeman, John Bunzel, Stephen Dynan, and Locke Kelly, as well as other programs and other guests we had during the year. There were just too many good moments to get them all within one hour. But I hope that you're going to enjoy this program today. You know, picking the best moments was a tough task, including some, excluding others. But I hope that you enjoy the ones that we've got today. In fact, we're going to be starting with our first interview back in January 2016 with Don Beck. Don is the co-author of the book Spiral Dynamics, and his interview, as well as the one we'll close with today, will bookend the year with discussions around Donald Trump. Don kind of surprised me back in January when we were speaking about the theory of spiral dynamics. In that theory, which is a... uh, uh, suggests that we go through an evolutionary set of different worldviews. Each viewpoint uh, arises based on our world conditions. We were discussing potential leaders who might understand and recognize these evolutionary world viewpoints. And it was Don who, well before Trump's popularity, brought him up as somebody to watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don, you know, one, one of the things that uh, has really struck me about the theory is that at, we really need to have, as you just indicated, the leadership move to the higher levels of understanding where they see this evolutionary worldview process at play. We tend to have a tendency to see things in black and white, yes, no, liberal, conservative. Uh, You know, it's one way or the other way. In fact, our media likes to paint that towards us. And I think one of the values that's really Spiral Dynamics has given me is to understand that when I'm looking at a political decision or political action or the uh, the will of the populate uh, in terms of what they want, uh, it's not a it's not a one way or the other kind of thing. It's really many different worldviews at play, and I think that's why the higher levels, the, the real distinction and the, the momentous leap to the seventh and eighth level of, of understanding uh, and worldview is that uh, you see the entire spiral playing out, that all of these worldviews are playing out simultaneously on the planet. And that's really the sort of mindset that we uh, would hope that our leaders would develop so that as they're making decisions, uh, they would not look at it as uh, conservative, progressive. They would look at it in the concepts of these uh, uh, different worldviews that, that are playing out. Uh, how do you feel that our our uh, politicians have been doing in that in that regards? Uh, very poorly, because you, when you listen to the debates once again, you you hear the same isms being presented, other than Donald Trump. Now, I I, I don't know the man. I, I I didn't know about him until he suddenly appeared on the scene, and I alerted my. 
community that there's something going on here that we need to pay attention to. And he, he's a good actor for sure. But I'm convinced that all the all the brutishness and the carnival type things is designed skillfully to set up a possibility of him influencing. And I would love to talk to him because I think with very little assistance, he could be the transitional leader because he's, he's fearless, he's self-funded, he didn't suffer fools very long. And if he were armed with this concept, it's an amazing what he could produce. And hopefully that will begin to find other leaders who can disassociate themselves from the prisons, prisoners of the past. And unfortunately, as you know, we have a political system, though, that makes it very, very difficult. Uh huh. You know, it's interesting that you would say that about Trump. And, uh, uh, you know, I've heard you, seen some of your notes regarding that. And it's uh, surprising, I think, for many people, especially because uh, especially if they're coming out of the green uh, and, and moving into the higher levels and, and, the, and the world views, they want to have this honoring and respectful dialogue that treats each other uh, with the dignity they, they, uh, that we see that is important for them. Yet uh, many of Trump's comments, especially build the wall between here and Mexico, let's deport everybody, you know, his, his uh, words of blame in, in regards to uh, uh, Muslims and religion, it, it seems to paint a picture of someone who is not working at the higher levels, but he's certainly speaking to different levels in terms of the voicing their concerns. And I think that's the point you're really making and what I'm hearing. Am I getting you correctly? Yes. He's uh, uh, difficult for many of us to listen to because of our own preconceived notions. He's he's a magician. He, He takes a more advanced position, like let's stop all the Muslims coming to this country. Then after the shock appears and he has the attention of the media, he'll begin to back off of that. It's very skillful. You can find it in his book, The Art of the Deal. But mm-hmm. I suggest that everybody read it. Now, we, we all agree with Einstein, who says we cannot solve the problems with the same level of thinking that produced them. But do we really believe that? Do we really truly believe that? that we're going to be looking for a diverse, off-the-wall, wild card to appear, who is the architect of a total different system without which we may not survive. So I just ask people to be cautious. My good friend Georgie Ann Geyer, who's a famous uh, commentator, recently made that point. She's from Chicago. And... And unfortunately, we have over the last six to seven years been overwhelmed by an egalitarian system that has a motive which has not been clear to us. Later in that same interview from January 2016, I asked Don about the political election and his thoughts on it. And this is what he had to say. All, all, all bets are off, which is good. Every system, when we play it out, seems not to work. That's evidence we're at the end of the epic, at the end of the orange-green systems. And uh, Donald Trump is is an interesting chap. Uh, He's very successful. I mean, gosh, the guy owns all kinds of companies and 
golf courses, and he, he knows what's important, and and all those. Things. He, he and he seems to be a decent guy. Doesn't smoke. Doesn't drink. Has an outstanding family. I mean, I could not etch in a kind of human personality that I thought would be essential today in order to break the logjam. And early on, I, I had a quotation from a good friend in Washington that everybody's going to be mad at him and someone might try to assassinate him because he upsets everybody because he is indeed what we've been praying for. He, his, his approach, not perfect by any means, uh, is, is what can break us free from the old traditional systems that all of us who quote Einstein say can't solve our problems. And so what I hope, and the media is partly responsible for this because the way they, they, they knee-jerk for political advantage. I was embarrassed at the way that, that so many so-called well-meaning progressive people have attacked him viciously. And you tell me that these are the kinds of models that we need in, in our culture? Well, where's creativity in all of this? Where are the academic organizations starting at Harvard and Yale and many others that are trapped in historic systems with strong egos. And it's, it's amazing that our entire system appears to be corrupted by our successes. And now those successes are coming back to haunt us because we're not producing the kinds of minds who have the capacity to deal with what is happening today. I'm encouraged by some of my African-American leaders Oprah and others who are beginning to get it, who are beginning to escape the gra gravitational pull of racism. Towards the conclusion of that January interview, I asked Don about the role of our next president, no matter who it might be. The key takeaway I'm hearing from you in this moment is that no matter who is elected uh, this upcoming year, that uh, we need to look at the message that was carried forward by every one of those candidates, that there was a, a, a worldview and someone who is somewhere on the spiral and has certain values and needs that need to be met, that that candidate was speaking for. And whoever gets elected needs to look at that message and be a leader for all the people. Now, what, what, what you've just done, Mark, is explain from my side why we're on the planet. It's going to take people like you to be able to interpret all these powerful, positive messages and align them. Now you're seeing what the real seventh level is. It's not this world-centric foolishness that I'm hearing here and there. It is the ability to discern in order to assist and facilitate the emergence of billions of people through these different layers and levels and to find in them what I call the master code. Mm -hmm. So that's what propels me to say that the master's, master's code, uh, along with this, this great new awakening that's going to be happening as the force is enriched through our lives. And so all those who are interested in spiral dynamics, please listen to me. Because there are no more prizes for forecasting the rain, only prizes for building the ark. So that's just some of the highlights from the January interview with Don Beck. I hope it whets your appetite to hear more. If you're interested in the theory of spiral dynamics or listening to the entire interview, please visit the Conscious Bridge website where you'll find links for all of that.
Next up, I want to highlight a couple of excerpts from the interview with Lee Eric Smith. Lee is the author of the website and Facebook page, A Message from God. And given that title, one of the first questions I, of course, posed to Lee was, what did he mean by talking to God? When people hear this concept, like, oh, you talk to God, you know, they have this old, you know, burning bush or, or voices in the sky but with booming, you know, Charlton Heston voice or something talking to you. And, um, you know, I'd like to hear, you know, how do you experience it when you say you're getting these messages? Wow. Another great question. Um, I would say that uh, for me, when, when, the, when the book was uh, coming through, um, for me, it was uh, kind of trusting uh, the process. I wasn't, okay, so to be clear, it wasn't so much that I was hearing, um, you know, voices, you know, from space or, you know, you're right, there wasn't any vegetation that spontaneously caught fire. <laughs> um, although, I didn't suspect it. <laughs> although that would be very cool if it happened, I think. I would, I would be impressed. But for me, no, it was it was more a gentle nudging, like, hey, Lee, get up and go over there to the computer. I got something I want to say, you know. Um, and then sitting down and stilling my mind and then trusting, you know, the process. If we're able to, um, you know, still ourselves, then that gives God the cleanest vessel to work with. And then I just put my fingers on the keyboard and allowed, um, you know, allowed the language, you know, the words uh, to come through. So uh, and what was coming through uh, made so much sense to me that I'm like, oh, so that's how it works. That's how it works, because, you know, what happens with religion, uh, traditional organized religion, what happens a lot is. Uh, there are differences in uh, different people's holy texts and their uh, religious traditions and how they practice these things, and people tend to get uh, attached to them. But I believe there are fundamental principles throughout, um, you know, the whole concept of connecting with that which is bigger than us, whether you call that God or Allah or Yahweh or Jehovah or uh, whatever, Native American uh, people refer to their deities are as whatever it is. There is a common thread. We're all connecting with something that we consider to be bigger than us. And uh, there are principles that are consistent across uh, all of these uh, different faith traditions. So let's talk about those principles that give birth to these different religions. It, it, it kind of reduces it to the lowest common denominator. Uh, mm -hmm. And was this some of the information that you felt like you were getting with some of these common principles that were common to all, uh, all faith paths. Exactly. And, um, and, and the thinking was, uh, that to, I, I suppose to really clarify the definition of this whole project and the spirit of it, a message from God. Uh, and it even says it in one of the chapters of the book is that, uh, you know, we're, I, I want everybody to, uh, meditate, to pray upon whatever it is you come into contact with. Uh, whether it's this program you're listening to now, uh, you go to the site and, you know, read or download a message from God, pray on it, meditate on it. The, these things, everything we come into contact with in our world is a catalyst um, that kind of wakes up something in our spirit. And it is 
that thing that is woken up in you, that is the message from God to you. You know, this project that I run, uh, this show that you listen to, everything, that all the great stuff that you do, Mark, at Conscious Bridge, is meant to stimulate that that nerve that really tunes into that message. But the real message, uh, you know, comes directly, you know, from God into our hearts. And this project is designed just to do that. So um, in a lot of ways, some of the things that I've written, like the Facebook messages, um, a lot of times I was going through something, I was feeling a certain way, and God would give me words to put down, but to write them in such a way that uh, the theme of it is universal. So, you know, if I'm writing about losing something, well, I might be writing about, you know, losing a loved one, but someone else reading might be writing about losing a job or going through a divorce. The, the themes are all there, but it's how it's what happens when this message that you read on Facebook, it's your spirit. Later on, my conversation with Lee steered into the area of politics. And in that, it was just natural that we would get into a consideration of the shift of human consciousness. If you have a, a, a just a container of water, it can be a pitcher or a glass, whatever, uh, and you drop some food coloring in it, it can be blue, red, green, whatever, but you don't stir it. You just let it do what it does. Eventually, that food coloring will dissipate throughout the entire liquid uh, naturally. Now, I use that metaphor, uh, you could even call it a parable if you like, uh, to say that uh, as new information and new ideas uh, hit the human consciousness, uh, they don't, ideas, concepts are not bound by, um, by a political party or by anything tangible. They, they eventually spread to out the whole device. I mean, throughout the whole, System and that's not again. I'm, uh, we're talking about physical laws here. That's that's the thing. The laws that apply to water apply to us too. You know, the laws that apply physically to water apply metaphysically to humans as well. So I say that to say that the fact that we are able to now via technology able to share uh, information, to share culture, to share music, uh, food, cuisine, art. Uh, all of these different things uh, and the and the greater degree to which we will be able to do that, I think is going to uh, melt a lot of these barriers that keep uh, that keep us separated and uh, once those barriers are melted, then the political structures that require those barriers uh, will crumble uh, naturally. Uh, because they won't have a foundation to stand on. The, the the work that we have to do in our world, in our society, is to work on shifting, uh, shifting awareness, uh, shifting con uh, consciousness. And once we do that, I think you know. I mean, it's important to take on you know political you know causes for justice, but you have to build it right. You know, the work that Dr. King did as we you know prepare to celebrate his birthday. Um, the work that he did, it, yes, of course, there were legal battles and, and marches and tangible things that people could see, but underneath it was enough people with uh, a certain type of mindset to build that movement on. So uh, there's groundwork to be done, but I'm excited. Uh, I believe that 
uh, music and culture. I want to say, I can't remember who it was. It was somebody like Bob Geldof or, you know, some eighties British rock star or somebody that said, they asked him, was he going to run for some political office in his native native country? And he was like, no, I'm going to stick with music because as he looks back over time, uh, the politics of a time, you know, empires crumble and fall, but the art that what they brought culturally is what stands the test of time. So if you want to have any lasting impact on society, focus on the arts. <laughs> Again, I encourage you to listen to the entire interview with Lee Eric Smith or visit his website, a message from God.org. After the break, we'll be hearing excerpts from the program with author Michael Dowd, as well as Arun Gandhi, Gregory Toole, and Barbara Bue. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Debbie Lynn Molyneux, President of Coffee Party USA. I hope you're enjoying this program, which is part of the Coffee Party's radio network of shows. Have you ever wondered exactly what is the Coffee Party? Well, have you ever brought up the subject of politics and watched as people roll their eyes? Well, Coffee Party is an all-volunteer nonprofit to encourage respectful conversation around politics. We want people to connect with each other in a more meaningful way. Coffee Party supports reforms of our electoral, campaign finance, government accountability, and tax systems. We also promote cultural changes to address political disengagement, polarization, and misinformation. Won't you come join us? Check out our website and find out how you can get involved as a member and a volunteer of Coffee Party USA today. Help bring civility and reason back to our political process. Go to coffeepartyusa.com to find out more. That's coffeepartyusa.com. Thank you. Hi, Mark Gilbert again. I hope you're enjoying this radio program. I invite you to also check out the Conscious Bridge website at www.consciousbridge.com or see the link on the radio program's website. There I've been sharing my exploration of the evolution of spirituality, politics, and culture for the past six years. You'll find descriptions and links of all four of my books, as well as years of articles, free audios, videos, listings and links to numerous resources, and be sure and sign up for my newsletter as well. If you do, you'll get a free gift from me. All of this and a whole lot more at ConsciousBridge.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back, everybody. Mark Gilbert again. Thanks again for joining us on this very special retrospective edition of Conscious Bridge Radio. We're revisiting some of the best moments of 2016. And one of my very favorite programs was one we did early this year entitled Avoiding Human Extinction. It was a discussion with author Michael Dowd. Michael is the author of the book, Thank God for Evolution, How the Marriage of Science and Religion Will Transform Your Life and Our World. And one of my favorite books, Michael had put out a 17-minute YouTube video called Reality's Rules, Ten Commandments to Avoid Extinction, and also has a PDF of what those rules are, which you can access via the Conscious Bridge website. I started the interview by asking Michael, how did we get into such a mess that he's writing about and doing videos on humans going extinct? 
why are we in the mess we're in such that we're talking today about avoiding extinction? How did we actually get here? Yeah, that's a good question. I think if I were to try to sum up why we are in the mess we are, <clears throat> it would be because we have an impotent and um, uh, dysfunctional understanding of God and divine revelation. Um, because the only hope for humanity, the only uh, way that humanity can avoid the common fate of all species, uh, which is to over uh, overproduce, overconsume, and ultimately create their habitat such that it um, it is no longer conducive for their own survival and thrival, is to have other beings, other animals, other creatures that keep certain aspects of their exuberant lifestyle in check. The problem or the challenge for humans is that we have, we have because of symbolic language, because of our ability to manipulate symbols called words, and the fact that we can accumulate knowledge and pass it on from generation to generation, this, this collective uh, um, education, um, collective knowledge, and cumulative uh, knowledge um, passing to generation to generation, it has allowed us to overcome all of the constraints that the natural world would have provided other than the constraints that we are now triggering by our activities, such as climate change and, um, and the toxification of the air, water, soil, and life. So the only thing that can ever save humanity, the only thing that allows us to live in right relationship to reality, and, and I use the word reality and God interchangeably, uh, I sometimes say reality is God's secular name, or God is reality's sacred name, or or personal name. Um, uh, basically, any understanding of God that isn't the voice of reality, the voice of undeniable and inescapable reality, is not God. Uh, reality is Lord. That's a that's a fact. It's not a belief. So we either need to live in right relationship to reality, or we go extinct. And as I said, we have now overcome the, the natural constraints to us. And so there are certain fundamental laws. There are laws of nature, laws of physics, laws of biology, and especially laws of ecology that we, um, we now have a clear understanding of. But because we don't see them as God's laws, we don't see them as things that we must obey or we will go extinct. That we, um, that's what I mean by the trivializing of religion, the trivializing of God and, and scripture is we, th- you know, if we think of God's, well, first of all, if, if we, if we think of God in any way that's not synonymous with reality, that's idolatry. And idolatry always leads to problems and ultimately self-destruction because if you have an unreal notion of God, a God that's not synonymous with reality, then what you think of as God's guidance will not be what reality is in fact revealing clearly in the present moment and for generations through evidence. You'll think of God's word or God's guidance or scripture as frozen in time in some ancient text. So your understanding of what's important will be skewed because you've got an outdated antiquated understanding of what's real. So I, I would say that the, the reason we're in the mess we are is that we, we think of God in otherworldly, unnatural, trivial ways. We think of Scripture or God's guidance or divine revelation in trivial and impotent and, and actually dysfunctional, disempowering ways. Um, I mean, it's not a surprise that the most religiously conservative, biblically-oriented parts of America are precisely those places that people struggle most with traditional sinfulness you know you don't find any place in the united states that has a higher rate of 
of uh, of teen pregnancy, of spouse addiction, or, I mean spouse uh, abuse, uh, domestic violence, uh, porn addiction, alcohol addiction. You find these in biblically conservative places because people are trying to live a godly life based on the Bible rather than based on what God's been revealing through evidence, through science. So we're toxifying the air, water, soil, and life, not because we're bad, rotten, evil, crummy, sinful people, but because we're doing what animals do, which is we take advantage of things for our benefit. But we now are in the precarious position that we have to now choose, we have to have the guidance, the wisdom, to check ourselves, to, to constrain ourselves. Um, our instincts are killing us. Our sense of abundance and, and limitlessness is killing us. So, so it's a terribly it's a terribly terrifying and also terribly exciting time to be alive and um these 10 commandments to avoid extinction what i call realities rules 10 commandments to avoid extinction um i'm not saying i'm channeling some otherworldly entity and i'm certainly not predicting anything i'm saying that if people look at what the evidence is telling us compellingly about what we need to do to survive and thrive into the future i think these 10 commandments really are the essence of what all the major sustainability people, all the major science and religion people. I mean, these, these, this is not just Michael Dowd's words. These are basically, I've been farming these ideas out to others and getting as much collective intelligence and, frank, frankly, correction. You know, I'm basically saying, I'm sending, you know, this, this video link that you mentioned, the, 12, the 17 minute, but also just the PDF of the Ten Commandments to Avoid Extinction, the actual wording. And I'm saying, I'm asking dozens of religious and ultimately hundreds of religious and, and, uh, 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 sustainability and environmental leaders, eco- ecologists and that sort of thing, scientists, as religious people. Is this accurate? Is this the way you read the evidence? Is this, is this in fact, what reality is telling us through evidence? Um, and if I'm in error in something, if my wording is off-putting in some way, uh, if, if there's some way that I can language this that would be more accurate to what reality is telling us, uh, then please help me improve it. Later in that same interview, I asked Michael that even though he's got his Ten Commandments for avoiding extinction, what was the single most important thing that humans could do to avoid the catastrophe you say awaits us? Here's his answer. Like if there was one thing that reality is telling us through evidence that we most need to do immediately, it's to shift from human-centered to life-centered uh, measures of progress and success and growth. Because if we think we can have a growing GNP or, you know, uh, gross domestic product, gross national product, whatever, but if we think we can have a growing human economy while the planet is becoming diminished, while the soil, we're losing topsoil, we're losing forests, the oceans are becoming acidified, the more carbon in the atmosphere, we're utterly insane. I mean, it's it's complete insanity. It's really uh, uh it ought to be considered blasphemous. It's ridiculous. We have a demonic economic system. We have an economic system that literally measures progress by how fast it can take the biosphere and turn it into pollution Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and reward the few at the expense of the many and force all of us, millions, billions of us, to harm the future simply by pursuing the so-called good life. And so this prime directive is we have to um, we have to shift how we measure progress and growth and success. Only when we start measuring decade by decade, is this, are we building topsoil? Are we still eroding topsoil? Are we reforesting? Are we restoring the wetlands? 
Are we pulling carbon, not only reducing the amount of carbon dioxide and methane we put into the atmosphere, but very quickly, within decades, we need to be pulling out. So every decade, are we pulling out more carbon dioxide? Are we planting more trees and building, you know, all the things that help do that. So we have to have biocentric or life-centered or what I really am starting to call God-centered. There's three words that I use pretty interchangeably or three phrases. One is primary reality. Primary reality is, is that reality that we don't exist without. I mean, the Milky Way is primary reality. Earth and sun are primary reality. The soil, air, water, and life upon which we depend is primary reality. Uh, the bacteria inside of us that need to do what they need to do for us to even have this conversation is primary reality. All the aspects of reality that are required for us to even exist, much less talk and think, um, uh, is primary reality. And that deserves our greatest attention. We need to attend to the health and well-being of primary reality first. So that's a secular way of saying it, primary reality. Nobody can argue with that. Okay. Um, I also refer to primary reality as God's nature. However anyone thinks about God, God's nature is primary reality. And we need to live in right relationship to God's nature. And, and the idea that we could think of God without including nature or that we could think of nature without seeing that it's divine and there needs to be honored and respected first is idolatry. It's, it's insanity. And so humans can't survive for very long. I mean, probably the, the limit, I think, is probably somewhere between seven and 10,000 years, and we're now at that limit. Because for 98% of human history, we did live in right relationship to God's nature. We did live in right relationship to primary reality. Uh, or we went extinct. There's just no other option. And then we started settling in villages and city-states, and we started staying in one place. The challenge is, if you're constantly hunting, gathering, moving, you're constantly, whatever you need for your sustenance, all creatures, all organisms, take resources from God's nature, from primary reality, or sometimes what people call the environment, but I think that's a pretty impotent way of talking about it. But however you talk about it, they take resources from nature, from reality, and then they exude waste. They They exude, as part of their living, they create things that are not conducive to their own well-being. So that has to be absorbed by the larger body of life and by other creatures and by other organisms. The challenge is once we start settling into cities and city-states, over hundreds of years, the toxins build up. I mean, you know, where are you going to put it? And so, so it's kind of like the yeast cells in, in a, you know, a wine vat, you know, or whatever. I mean, it's ultimately the yeast end up keep multiplying because there's this, this is conducive, this wonderful habitat, and they're just thriving, and it's this abundance and exuberant growth, and then they reach the limit because basically they die in their own toxic byproducts. They die in their own, the, own, their fer- the fermentation process, uh, products. And so we are now at that place where we have to live within what I call grace limits. We have to live within the carrying capacity of the earth as a whole and each bioregion. And so we're, we're right smack in the middle of the greatest transformation in human history. I mean, if humans survive this, which we may not, we could go extinct in the next 50 to 100 years. We just don't know if we've, if we've triggered certain tipping points. But I don't think so. I think, that, I think the evidence suggests in terms of paleoclimate, like what we know about the rise and fall of temperatures in the past, I think we'll survive. But I think there'll be a greatly diminished number of us, probably less than a billion 100 years from now, just from famine, drought, 
shifting climate or growing belts and living in a post-antibiotic age, which we're pretty close to. But I think, I think if we do survive this bottleneck, humans for the next thousands, tens of thousands, possibly even millions of years, unless some asteroid or super volcano takes us out, will be back to the way that we live for the last 98%. So basically you've got the from 2 million years ago, which is Homo habilis, walking upright using stone tools, Homo sapiens using symbolic language roughly 250,000 years ago, and then we've only had writing for the last you know, four or 5,000 years. So we lived in right relationship to God, to reality, to nature, to primary reality for 98% of human history. We're now in this 2% of human history that we're out of right relationship to reality, and we're now about to experience the age of consequences. And then if we survive this bottleneck, the next 98% of humanity, however long we last, we will be living back in right relationship to God, to primary reality. And, and these, these Ten Commandments, I think, are a roadmap there. In the next and final clip from the Michael Dowd interview, I wanted to take him from the Ten Commandments that he had spelled out for moving us towards avoiding extinction into the practical steps of moving people in their consciousness from lower level needs to higher level needs. He took us in a different direction that I was anticipating. Listen, how can we, in your mind, move people from thinking in terms of uh, lower level needs and selfish needs to moving towards actual, uh, actually seeing life from a, from a larger perspective and a larger time frame? That's a great question. And I think the only way to do it is to have religion religious sensibility, not any one religion, but sort of religious values that infuse secular and religious culture that are about honoring primary reality first. I mean, I, I want to come back to a tone that I, that I started with, which is we're not doing anything that any other animal wouldn't do if they were in our, in, in our position. I mean, you know, no other animal thinks of the well-being of the bioregion or the community of life first. They just pursue their own self-interest. That's what we're genetically programmed to do. And the, the interest of our groups, if we're, if we're social animals or social insects. Um, and so it, it's, it, I, think that, I think there's time for compassion and, and generosity of soul. I mean, my, um, my great mentor, Thomas Berry, was all about the universe story. And my new great mentor as of the last two years is William Catton. And he wrote a book called Overshoot. The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change. I consider it the single most important book I've ever read in my life, literally. And many other people do, too. Um, uh, it's, uh, in fact, it's been called the, 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 uh, by environmentalists and, and people who are committed to a healthy future, the most important book, or certainly one of the top two or three most important books of the 20th century. And he writes with such generosity of soul because he constantly comes back to this notion that we're doing what other animals do. This is not, we're not uniquely evil. We're not uniquely bad. But that's why we have to have religion, coming back to your question. Religion is the only thing to do it because what religion is, it's nothing otherworldly or supernatural. Yes, you can think of it that way, but that's not what it's about. What religions are about, the, the, the evolutionary significance of religion is to help us live in right relationship to reality, and specifically to promote personal wholeness, social coherence, and ecological integrity, meaning right relationship to oneself, right relationship to one's group, and right relationship to the ground of being, the primary reality upon which we depend. Whether you call it the goddess or God or nature or whatever you call it, it's 
inescapably real. And so the last several thousand years, the great axial faiths, the great religious traditions of the last 25, 2,800 years, all the great basic faiths of the, United, of the world um, are pretty transcendent, otherworldly oriented. And so they dropped out ecological integrity. So most of the, the existing world's religions are really quite good at promoting personal wholeness and social coherence. But they're not really all that great about promoting ecological integrity. And part of that is because of the impact of written language, how written language has has shifted our consciousness, shifted our thinking, so that we start having these otherworldly, supernatural, unnatural notions of ultimacy. And we start treating nature more as something that we can take advantage of and use for our benefit without the realization that it's primary reality and there are consequences. You know, so we, we denude the forests, we... We, uh, you know, uh, uh, salinize the topsoil, you know, or, or, or farm it in such a ways that we, it, we, you know, it's degraded or lost to the seas. Um, we're now, you know, overfishing, you know, and so on, on and on and on. I'm not going to go through a whole litany. So my point, though, is to answer your question is I think we have to have, if, if <laughs> let's put it this way, if religion isn't saved, if religion doesn't have a born-again experience like we're talking in the coming decades, Humanity is utterly screwed. There's no way that our species can survive with the, with the current otherworldly-oriented religious traditions. Fortunately, they can't maintain because even now we're seeing, we're seeing evangelical grandchildren pressuring their grandparents, saying, your theology is killing us. That we're, that we're, you're going to create a hell that we're going to a real hell that we're going to have to live with. Thomas Berry famously said it. He's he, one, one of the most profound ecological and evolutionary thinkers of the 20th century. One of his, my favorite quotes of his, he says, we will never enter, we meaning humanity, humanity will never enter a just, healthy, and sustainably life-giving future on the resources of the existing religious traditions. And we can't get there without them. They won't do it in and of themselves. And we can't get there without them. There's just too many billions of religious believers. So I think we will, historians looking back a thousand years from now, will see, again, assuming we survive, will will see this is the, 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 the realizing, R-E-A-L, capital, R-E-A-L, the realizing of religion. Religion having a born, its own born-again experience, its own salvation experience, meaning it's coming home to reality, coming home to reality, including nature. Uh, that's why I've started spelling God often as G-O-D-D-E. Sounds the same when I just speak it to you, God. But when you read it, it stops people in their tracks because they're not used to seeing the extra D-E at the end. So G-O-D-D-E. And all I mean by that is God, whatever your concepts of God, including nature. So it's, it's inclusive because any God that merely transcends nature is less, is trivial compared to a God that transcends and includes nature. And so God spelled G-O-D-D-E. When people see that, I, they know that I'm meaning nature, but I'm also meaning whatever that reality is beyond this universe. Uh, if there is that, we just don't know. We need to be humble about that. And so all the religions, I, th- I think of it as the greening of religion. I think all religions in the next thousand years, actually, frankly, I think in the next coming decades, in the coming decades, we will see millions of religious people of all different religious faiths coming to embrace ecology as the new theology and evolution or big history 
as our common creation story, as our sacred story, and the sacralizing of the ecology and the sacralizing of big history. Uh, because anything that's not considered sacred doesn't survive dark ages, doesn't survive the contraction and collapse of civilizations. And there's absolutely no question that we're in the contracting decades and centuries of industrial civilization. And so whatever healthy forms of religiosity emerge on the other side of the bottleneck, um, I think they will fully embrace an ecological evolutionary worldview. And by evolution, I mean the history of everyone and everything, big history. What was fascinating is that Michael Dowd brought up the concepts of our returning to seeing the world as sacred. Also this past year, not a part of Conscious Bridge Radio, but on a separate program on an interview for the Coffee Party, I had the great pleasure of interviewing TV talk show host and author Tom Hartman. One of my questions to Tom was uh, in regards to how we could move through the next changes in our society in a way that would lead us to the highest possibilities for our life. And his answer dealt with the same topic of us returning to a resacralization of life, of starting to see things as sacred. The combination of both Michael and Tom bringing that point up just on the heels of one another uh, led me to having a special program last year with Gregory Toole and Barbara Bue, where that was the topic, seeing the world as sacred. You can hear that program on Conscious Bridge Radio. Again, the links are on the program site. But the next excerpt I want to share with you is from our interview with the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, Arun Gandhi. And we talked about the concept of what exactly does it mean for us to quote unquote, be the change. Your, your, your grandfather left the message of be the change. That's our topic yeah. for today. And, you, and that's the seems to be the essence of your teaching. What, what does that phrase really mean to you when you say be the change you want to see? Well, what it means to me is that each one of us needs to uh, look at our weaknesses. And we all have weaknesses. And if we can transform those weaknesses, we become stronger and we be able to do, um, you know, more, uh, um, uh, we, we could be more compassionate and loving and respectful uh, rather than being uh, individualistic and, uh, and selfish and, and materialistic. Uh, so, you know, we have to have that kind of... Uh, uh, we have to bring out all the goodness that exists in every human being. We do have uh, the goodness, but we suppress it. Uh, and by transforming those weaknesses, we allow the goodness to uh, flow out. Uh, and so we then uh, are able to uh, show greater compassion and love and respect for uh, all beings not just human beings, but all uh, life forms. Mm -hmm. and, and if I could take that and, and put it back to our earlier conversation about the involvement in the political process, I think that not only do we take a look at our own lives and, and make those changes where we can be less violent in our reactions, more loving in how we treat other people, I think we can also... With, with with appropriate actions of barriers where people are being acting against us, that we that we stand up and for our principles. That uh, in, yeah. the, in the political arena, then we're really called for uh, 
looking out and saying, how can we bring ourselves to a more loving, nonviolent reaction when we're feeling anger and the political situations that are going on in the world? And what would be the positive reaction that we want to bring forward in this moment? Exactly. I think the role of the politicians uh, should be uh, to bring out the goodness in all human beings, Uh, you know. Uh, all the people uh, that they govern. Instead, what is happening is that the politicians today are bringing out the worst in human beings. We began this special retrospective with our January program where author Don Beck surprised me by talking about Donald Trump and how his leadership might be what was needed at this time in the U.S. history. I didn't necessarily agree with him then, and then as the year rolled along, I was not necessarily a fan of Donald Trump. However, as we all know, Trump won the election. And on the days right after the election, I gathered friends of mine to talk about what is it that can Trump, you or I, do to heal this country. And so as part of that program, I invited back my special guest and friends, Gregory Toole, and Barb Review to discuss that topic. We start with some observations from Barbara. One of the things I keep noticing about elections is they're very, they've been very close for the last, the last four really have been really close for the most part. And then whoever wins pretends like they won a mandate of some, of some kind. And this election, especially again, you know, Hillary won the popular vote. And yes, he won the Electoral College, but he didn't win. Nobody's really winning anymore. And we're not going to win until we reach into the middle and start to get along again. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. so I think, that, I think that a lot of people are looking for an example of reaching across and getting things done and moving in a way that is supportive of the entire country and not just one side of the country. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. Gregory, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I love what Barbara is saying. And um, uh, the first place I want to go is um, our own uh, healing. And um, one of the things that I found myself saying to a few people who were really concerned about what Donald Trump would do, I found myself saying, well, he's not the devil. <laughs> um, and then I had to turn that back to myself because Um, I did not vote for Trump, and I did find myself leading up to the election uh, really casting him as uh, this pariah, this this terrible uh, being, uh, really, that was not divine uh, and was not, you know, in alignment with my um, belief that we're all divine and that we're all unique manifestations of, of the one. And so the first thing for me is is to begin opening up to embracing what he might be able to offer. And, of course, uh, he is in the position to demonstrate uh, that he is going to be a bridge, that he is going to be a president of all the people. Uh, but for me, it was moving to uh, opening up to the possibility of the good that could come about through this. And... Uh, I wrote my most recent blog was about the symbolism of 
uh, Trump and, Ber and Bernie Sanders around their, you know, people really clamoring for major change. And that, that the, the victory is really symbolic of people wanting major change more so than that they want specifically what uh, he was promising. And I didn't realize how, how prophetic that blog was going to be in terms of uh, I still expected that uh, Hillary was going to win. But uh, I think what I wrote was right on in terms of that is the sentiment of the country that people are really ripe for change. And, you know, I think what uh, Donald Trump can do, similar to what Barbara said, is really uh, begin to reach out, begin to reach across the aisle, begin to reach out to people, begin to recognize that this is what people want, is, is they want something different. They don't want him to come in and suddenly sway things all in one direction. Uh, they want him to come in and, and be the catalyst for the kind of change uh, that's needed to lift us all up. One of my favorite quotes from this discussion with Gregory and Barbara was Barbara's observations over bringing us together around a common vision. I just keep thinking at some point in, in all of it, there has to stop being sides. And, and I know that we're not there yet. You know, I mean, I've been working with that within my own community. You know, there has to stop being sides. There has to be a, what, what is our vision and, and what's the best way to move towards that, mm -hmm. you know, and, and until we can unify around a vision of some sort, whatever that might be, I think, I think then there's sides and, and then we're always going to be having this thing. Mm -hmm. But at some point, I don't know. I keep thinking at some point we get less attached to our side and more attached to how do we move forward in the best way possible for the most people. As we concluded our discussion about what Trump, you or I, can do to heal this country, I asked both Gregory and Barbara for their final thoughts on the topic. And their words are worth listening to again. Well, you know, I, I think it comes back to that we are uh, truly all one and connected and our destinies are intertwined with one another. That really is the truth. That really is the reality. And... Um, you know, Donald Trump is, um, he's been the one who's been elected by the people right now. And um, one of the things that came to me around that was, you know, how elated I was, uh, you know, with my choice of candidate winning the last two elections and how um, hurt a lot of other people were in, in that experience, how that was not their choice and how they did not feel that that was a good choice for the country. And so, you know, now I get to be, uh, you know, a big boy in democracy <laughs> and say that, you know, I'm not going to always have my choice and the people have spoken um, and, you know, he is uh, the choice of the people. And now how can, you know, we come back to that really we're not separate. We're not a separate people. We're not a divided people. Uh, even the divisions that seem to come about in the election, let's realize that elections are very heated events. Elections are very emotionally charged events. And let's, you know, put that behind us and not assume that we're going forward in the same way that the election took place. 
Uh, even I, I thought that Trump's uh, acceptance speech was really good. I thought he struck uh, the perfect tone, and I'm really hopeful that uh, that this is a time for us to come together, that this is a time for us to embrace the aspect of what the people have spoken and to, to, to really embrace that at a level, as I said earlier, of values and really embrace that um, there is something divinely perfect that is always unfolding. And it especially is difficult when it looks totally different than what we think it ought to look like. <laughs> and that's the case for a lot of people right now. But to know the greater truth that something really good is happening here. And yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Something really good is happening. And let's get on that uh, wave and see what we can contribute to, to what good is really trying to happen here for us. You know, I, I, I'm with Gregory on all of that. I think, I think if, I, if I had a, a wish that I could implant into Donald Trump's mind, it would be to remember that he is the president of all of us, not just the president of the people that voted for him. That, and, and I think that, and, and, you know, we keep forgetting that part. And, and so he's, he's a New Yorker, and he's been surrounded his whole life by lots of cultures and people, and, and I hope that he actually brings that to D.C. and, 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 works from a pl- and can work from a place of, of creating something that's working for all of us. Um, and, and that would be really different. And I think, I think as the outsider to the political system, he could actually upset all of that structure that is holding everybody in such rigid places that they can't can't move and breathe together, you know, and, and what, and I just, I just wanted to get everybody to breathe together for a minute, which seems really woo woo. I know, but but honestly, like we really all need to take a breath right now and, and settle down and, and see what's going to work for people and hear the people in the middle and hear the people who are hurting and hear the people who are not hurting and, and want the world to progress. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And I, I, I would add to both of your comments that, you know, that I would love that every person uh, also remember that Trump is a president of all the people, that the election was a process we went through, as Gregory said, mm-hmm. you know, it's time to not, we, we can celebrate if our candidate won, we can feel the pain that our candidate lost. And we know that feeling of both from our prior elections as Gregory stated, now let's move. Let's also never lose sight of the fact that we're Americans first and we're humans first, having moving through this, this life experience and that we all want the same things. We want, you know, jobs and security and basic needs met. And we all want the ability to thrive on this planet. And I think that the more each of us recognize that every human we look at, and, and it's an interesting thing. If you're walking the streets Every two people, one of them voted probably for Trump, one for Hillary. You, uh, you've got a, everybody you're interacting with, even though we put ourselves in our self-selected bubbles from time to time in most of our lives. Um, but out in, out in public, you're, you're interacting with people who don't necessarily and did not necessarily see this election politically as you did, yet they want the same thing that you did. And Can we focus on that 
rather than the divisiveness? And can we let go of looking at our differences and instead focusing on our unity? Right, right. And can he govern from a, a remembering that half of the country was looking for something different and, and, recon- and trying to reconcile with that half as well? Well, that brings us to the end of this special edition of Conscious Bridge Radio. A look back at some of the best moments from the past year of 2016. I'm looking forward to our programs in 2017. New guests, new topics, new things to explore as we look at the intersection of spirituality, politics, and culture. I hope you've enjoyed this program. I hope that your listening to these clips have encouraged you to perhaps go back and listen to the full conversation. And also check out some of the people that we didn't even bring on to the program today. All of the programs were special in their own way. They were a lot of fun to bring to you, and I hope you're enjoying listening to them. So until next time, this is Mark Gilbert signing off for Conscious Bridge Radio. Thanks for listening.